the the theme park I was trying to come up with is the Enchanted. Forest. That's the one. Yes, the Enchanted <laughs> it's in Salem, Oregon. It is not. It may be haunted, but that's not how they're pitching it. <laughs> oh, I've never been to it, but I've driven past it, and it oh, looks the haunted. same. Last time I drove by it, it looked about the same as it did 20 years ago. I wonder if anybody's there. It yeah. may be, it's like a Scooby-Doo destination, you know, where the signs are kind of hanging off and, and you're the guy who says, no, gang, come on, we can we can make this place wonderful again. But it turns out there's like a crazy axe murdering, you know, uh, a caretaker who lives in a in Oh, yeah, a this cabin is right, and, right, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I could have done it too if it weren't for you and your seven children. <laughs> uh, I uh, think could come up with at least a sci-fi network show that takes place at the enchanted forest it wouldn't take much these days for sci-fi no i know uh, <laughs> now now let's talk about speaking of things that aren't true are you up on this mike daisy thing mike daisy oh no you're kidding me this is like the biggest story of the week okay it's not what? the biggest there are some big stories this week and one of them is this mike daisy thing he's the guy who did the the you know the the apple uh uh, he does. The, he's a monologist, and he's the guy who said, "You know, I went to I went to Apple in Shenzhen, and they wouldn't let me in, and oh, so I came guy. back okay. and did yeah, a." Yeah. I just okay. Yes, I am. You are up to speed didn't, on this. Didn't know him by name. What do you? Well, this is this is the retraction that uh, This American Life had to make this weekend. Not just This American Life, of course. Now it's like the New York Times and anybody who has ever gone along with what Mike Daisy said and took it as journalism as fact and printed. Mike Daisy as fact is is uh, you know over the last several months is um is having to take it back. <clears throat> yeah, my understanding is that the first um inkling of trouble there was after I think this American life um and this Mike Daisy had said a couple of things like that uh, this translator that he'd used couldn't be found anymore and was lost and, and some other contacts that he named. Um, well, yeah, it was like, the marketplace, uh, uh, journalist who went, who, who was based there and went and yeah. actually did track down the, well, yeah, the did a couple of Google searches yeah. and said, Oh no, these, okay, that's a red flag. Yeah, and then he happen. started notifying people and yeah, the whole thing fell apart, fell apart. And the, uh, to listen to, uh, did you listen to This American Life at all this weekend? Not this weekend, but I did listen it, to the story the prior weekend. Well, it, it was to listen to Ira Glass's uh, intro monologue uh, talking about this was it, it just raises all the hair on the back of your neck to hear a guy who clearly has, you know, what, whatever you think of This American Life and of what they do, uh, their brand of of storytelling and journalism, he takes this stuff pretty seriously. And yeah, he seems like a pretty serious guy. He's altogether. a serious <laughs> dude, and uh, and you can tell he was not uh, uh, he's not happy with what happened. I mean, it was the, the silent moments of this uh, Ugh, of of the show were just deafening. Well, uh, but here's the thing. Um, I have a thing too. I'm excited to hear your thing. <laughs> well, it was only a couple of weeks ago, and I can't remember if I talked to you about this or not, but. Um, Maybe it was a month ago, but there was this conversation going on on NPR, and I came in in the middle of it. I don't know who these two people were, um, but they were having a debate um, about storytelling and uh, facts 
um, like I I don't know all the like the literary um, terms that they were sort of mincing or whatever. But you you know on the on the one side somebody was saying you've got to like w- when you're talking about um, historical events or whether it's you know something you've experienced yourself or whatever you have to be 100% everything has to be factual and the other guy was saying well no that's not really the way life works um embellishing is is actually okay and it's a part of telling stories that we can't get away from and and so you know as they were talking i'm thinking of you know the big uh well I'm, you know after that what's his name is it david fry or whatever that did um, stephen fry uh, a million little pieces. It was the Oprah Winfrey blow up, or he'd gone on her show and said, "This was, this is my experience of drug addiction and recovery." And then, turns out, it was mostly um, fictional. And afterwards, people like, oh, I don't, you know, it was um, Sider- David Sedaris had said, and then people were being interviewed, like, okay, so when you're talking about your life. And people just had different opinions about what was, you know, if I'm telling um, a humorous account of something that may have happened to me 20 years ago, how much of that needs to be accurate? Am I okay to embellish some things because it's, you know, that kind of a story? And, And there's just this ongoing debate that is always evolving and always has been. So in this particular case, um, you have this guy who does, who's kind of his his partial defense is, well, why were you guys? No, I'm just uh, I do this monologue. This is entertainment. I'm not a journalist, you know. And then you've got This American Life, which is not necessarily a journalist show, but a show that tells stories. Well, <laughs> you know, you could I, okay. So here's the thing: when you when you so let's take This American Life out of it, right? When you have uh, Bill Maher asking Mike Daisy, Daisy says, people work on that line tirelessly, talking of Apple's line in Shenzhen, hour after hour until they drop. I met people who were Bill Maher until they drop. Daisy, they drop. A worker at Foxconn died after working a 34-hour shift while I was in China. Right? That's Daisy. His words on Bill Maher telling a story again. That did not happen. That was not true, right? So it's not so much that, I mean, this stuff had been repeated not just by This American Life, but by, uh, by you know, news organizations time and time again. The New York Times had to retract a whole bunch of stuff the other uh, on Friday uh, because he presented as fact right. uh, things that did not happen. Right. That is the problem. He presented as categorical fact things that did not happen. He did not present them as uh, editorial sort of reasoning or, um, you know, uh, or as fable. Is he still doing that, though? Yeah, he is. And he actually on his blog, uh, he posted uh, his statement. Um, His statement is interesting. Um, they uh he writes a long response about uh about the post on on this american life and it it just went up uh it looks like yesterday afternoon i haven't i actually have, haven't read it yet uh but he did post the monologue uh from the prologue that he d- delivered at his sunday performance uh and it it's you know essentially 
I stand by my work. My show is a theatrical piece whose goal is to create human connection between our gorgeous devices and the brutal circumstances from which they emerge, and so on. Uh, now, I there are I I think whatever you think of I, I think Mike Daisy's credibility is is, is essentially shot, but it, it is not necessarily because of you know what he said but how he presented it i mean if he had gone back and said you know this is a monologue and, and these things i tried to go to china i couldn't see the things that were there so i took this amalgamation of news reports that i've heard and i created this story and it's going to be entertaining that's what this is and and call a duck a duck it would have been different the problem is because his credibility is so shot and because he 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 took a chance uh, and and decided to um, you know to present as fact untruths. He has essentially deflated much of the energy behind real issues that are going on there. Right there, there are th things that that we need to deal with as a culture around you know the creation of our devices. And Mike Daisy has has you know sort of single handedly lent a blow to that effort. Uh, and that's do, unfortunate. Do you think it's in anybody's best interest to take legal action against him? I wonder, though. I don't know if anybody will, but I wonder. You know, the the those who I think would be most affected are the theaters. Uh, and there was a fascinating um, uh, a fascinating story from the theaters uh, perspective. Uh, let's see. It was. Uh, let me bring it up. The uh, it was in artsjournal. dot uh, com. Um, by Clayton Lord. Oh, it was a guest post. Ali Houseworth, an independent arts consultant and former marketing and communications director at the Woolly Mammoth Theater Company. Uh, and uh, Ali uh, Houseworth writes, uh, in 2010, I worked at the Woolly Mammoth Theater Company when the agony and ecstasy of Steve Jobs was birthed at that theater. And the following spring was the marketing and communications director who worked on the show at Woolly. Today, as an independent consultant, I write a former marketing. I write as a former marketing director, no longer bound by public statement. And so that she goes on to this, to to write this long uh, discussion about the production, uh, urging the American theater to boycott this work, boycott Mike's gorgeous, amazing piece of theater that is based on a true story, boycott it until you get the apology that you deserve and we do not ever, ever remount it or produce a work of his again until you know for sure what is true. And she is calling specifically for theaters when presented with work like this to do their own fact checking right that is a whole new kind of uh, kind of thing i certainly have never heard of of that uh she writes and to the tens of thousands of americans who paid money to sit in our theaters to see this show that was billed as a non-fiction piece of theater i am so sorry you deserve an apology from us art makers we should have known better we should have done our fact checking our dramaturgs should have gone through every fact in the show just like they do with other plays that go on Dang. our stages that's too much. I don't know if it's too much. I don't know I, if it's too much. I think I, I, I go back to what I, I would say this. I would say uh, if the theater is going to bill the show as, you know, verifiable fact, then they probably do need to have um, they, they need to have validity to the statement. So they they're, if they're going to say that they need uh to hold some responsibility to, well, to, that gets to feel to confident your, about right. that. But I think it's far easier for him to have done what you said he should have done in the first place. And it's a far easier, theaters are just not the kinds of 
organizations that I see really digging in and doing fact checking just to put a play on and entertain people, I think that they would be better off saying, look, I'm not going to take the time to fact check your work. So, you well, know, at a very minimum, here's a new line in our release that says, if you're going to put this work on and bill it as fact, you're taking 100% of the responsibility if we ever get in trouble. Or, you know, I would say as a theater, if you feel like there's like maybe you have a legal obligation or whatever, all you have to do is say this is a, you know, this is as far as we know, a work of fiction. And if he's not willing to say that I'm presenting this as entertainment and and I don't have, you know, I can't verify all the facts for you, then it goes on as that and not yeah. the other. Because I guess what we're saying is this would have been an entertaining piece and he could have said these things if he always had that caveat and everyone understood that and he never went on shows like This American Life or Bill Maher and 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 then sort of elevated it to that a much higher level of, of I guess, um, lying. Yes. Because I think, you know, the line between what is art and and what is, I guess, journalism, there has to be some line there. And theaters shouldn't, I think, be held responsible for everything that entertains you unless they say, uh, um, you know, I mean, even, but go, was it Fargo that the movie begins with, you know, this is a true story and it's not a true story? Yeah, exactly. I mean, there there has to be some allowance for things like that. Th this one crossed this, I think, very clear lines, but it does. This raise... crossed a very clear line because he presents it. Uh, he, you know, he he doesn't present it like Fargo. Right. <laughs> right. Right. There but, but there is still... a certain amount of critical thinking that goes into being able to interpret, you know, what is being presented. But I think you know what what may be more interesting uh, out of all of this. Um, let me find this other. It's Eric Eric Hesseldahl, you know. I love Eric. Eric Hesseldahl uh, has some really interesting things to say in his uh, column at All Things D. Um, and uh, let's see. Mike Daisy is not. Uh, instead of the elimination of the serious topic, you know, I, there's a there's a really great quote. So I'm gonna I'm gonna find it uh, while you talk about something else. Go. <laughs> uh, I'm going to talk about my monologue that I'm creating uh, based in fact, um, I found but it. not factual. Okay, <laughs> go ahead. <laughs> uh, Ari Kesseldahl on the media and Mike Daisy at All Things D says, at this point, it's hard to determine what's more outrageous, Daisy's lies to Ira Glass and his team or the national media's willingness to give Daisy a platform to repeat the same lies and fabrications without making the slightest effort to vet them. And I, I think that's uh, that gets back to the point I was making earlier that this is this this takes the air out of an otherwise important issue, and uh, and and one that we need to be we need to be aware of culturally, if not just you know um, in terms of current events. Uh, and it gets back, you know, there was I've been thinking about last week's show, right? Which you know we had that whole conversation about the homeless hotspots, mm -hmm. and uh, you know after we had our show. Uh, uh, Cause Talk Radio did did uh, essentially a whole half hour on uh, homeless hotspots, and they brought on um, uh, Mark Horvath, uh, 
uh, who's uh, known on Twitter as hardly normal. He's a filmmaker and a, and a, a homeless activist. And he's, he, uh, you know, he wrote a, a breathlessly uh, optimistic post about homeless hotspots in Austin and uh, had another really great point on Twitter about it, you know, because I, I found it offensive. And my whole point was whatever their intentions were, the the BBH agency's intentions about helping the homeless by, you know, having these, you know, having technologists use them as, as hotspots, you, you know, from a marketing perspective, you can't get over the initial shudder of of it and very few people are going to go the extra mile of forming an informed opinion after they are insulted like that they're going to move on because this is not an issue that's of great importance to them and they're left with a sour taste in their mouth and then they go have some chinese food okay so that that's my that was my initial stance and he had uh, another really great um, point about it as much as i wasn't crazy about his blog post i didn't find it that illuminating and nor do i think it actually got to the point what he did say that i thought was really important was that um uh in the end the, the homelessness is a massive problem and do you think you know based on the experience of bbh this year do you think other brands are going to be really excited about helping the homeless uh next year south by southwest you know, how many brands are going to jump in and try something original and new, uh, you know, next year after, you know, all this hue and cry over over this one? And and I think that's a really good point. You know, just the fact that that sometimes our own initiatives uh, get in the way of our own best interests. Take it. Take it, Dane. Yeah, well, I don't know where to go with that. <laughs> I don't know either. I, you know, um, I feel like that's more of a more than anything is just sort of a correction. Uh, or not okay. a correction, but just a just it, it gets to the point that that there are bigger issues, and these are these are certainly first world problems uh, that we're dealing right. with here. Well, I was gonna, um, yeah. I mean, you're you're bringing up. Um, I mean, we we sort of got there discussing, um, you know, fact checking and the responsibility of media to get a, a story right, and and I think we've also. It seems like last week, maybe it was the week before, we were discussing. Um, you know, source checking and and news aggregators and this um, the fact that a lot of the stories that we read in higher profile online publications tend to have been bastardized to some degree from an original. And you, you know, you were talking about students and how do they how do they cite sources when they're doing papers and that kind of thing? If they're reading something in well, let's say it's even USA Today, but it turns out it's like, you know, a third of the original story without really good source citation. And so do they go back to the original? And, it, you know, that's this whole thing of, gee, with so much more information at our fingertips, why does it seem like it's more likely to be, you know, be reading incorrect information um, that's harder to sort, harder to cite or source? instead of more likely you know what what's the reason for that and and so these conversations happen like when something like this happens and reputable um programs and publications feel the sting of having believed somebody uh who claimed to be a first-hand witness of something that they weren't able to fact check of otherwise and now everyone's having this big conversation about the responsibility everyone has to get things right. Meanwhile, and I, I'll keep coming back to this for quite some time, I think, but we're heading into, uh, you know, the hot election cycle. 
And it's the one area in advertising where truth in advertising doesn't matter and is, in fact, legally, no one is required to be accountable. You can say whatever you want, as long as it's a political ad, you can attack your opponent with completely, you know, inaccurate information, and it's legal. You can get away with that. Right. So that's the one area I would love to see some, uh, <laughs> some, I just, I don't get why, you know, in the, in the area of politics, the rules tend to be not apply. It seems so odd to yeah, me. I know. Well, uh, clearly politics and technology. Um, let's, uh, <laughs> so I had, I had one other thing. This is, here we go on a, on a tool. Have you seen what? Uh, have you seen at all the social, uh, the new, the new, the whole new hot social thing uh, that Google announced on its blog this morning? No. Uh, okay, so to be fair, it was this morning, and it's called uh, capture. So I, there I am uh, reading, you know, as I am want to do uh, things that are not of use to me, like for example, onetinyhand.com. Why don't you go there right now, Dane? I'm on the Google blog. I'm not. What, what no, am I no, supposed go to, to be go getting to, excited go to, about? First, go to onetinyhand.com. We'll get back to this for a second. Okay. One tiny hand is a little bit of a timeout uh, for us all to think about what it would be like to see all of our favorite celebrities if they had one and only one tiny hand. <laughs> it's it's a Photoshop blog, and it's this uh, is great. It's really great. And so that you should all go do that. OneTinyHand.com. Super fun. Uh, okay, so I'm reading things like OneTinyHand.com. So I'm not really contributing to the world at large at all. And I come across this post that's called uh, Why Are Marketers Still Failing at Social Media? And it's all about how, you know, social media, we, we love it. We feel like it's so good, but we don't really have the tools to understand the data and the analytics. And, oh, our life is so hard because we don't have all the, all the tools to, to do it. And, it, you know, they didn't, this post didn't actually whine as much as I'm whining. It was from the fullquota.com blog. And they do, they do social analytics for sales uh, processing. And then I stumble across, and I, this was posted uh, this morning, and it's so funny because they... They, they don't make any note of what Google announces this morning, which is a whole new uh, social dashboard for Google Analytics. And their blog post is on the analytics.blogspot.com blog, the Google Analytics blog. It's capturing the value of social media using Google Analytics. Uh, measuring the value of social media has been a challenge for marketers and with good reason. It's hard to understand exactly what is happening in the environment where the activity occurs both on and off your site. Uh, since social media is often an upper funnel player in the shopper's journey, it's not always easy to determine which social channels actually drive value for your business and which tactics are most effective. So there it is. They've come out with this new uh, social dashboard, a social value dashboard where you can use, you can set your goals and your conversion goals and then integrate social activity uh, with those goals. And so I logged into Google Analytics and one of my accounts does have the social engagement dashboard under standard reporting uh, enabled. And uh, I'm not getting any real excitement out of it. And it's not that great. And I imagine if I ran uh, even a moderately larger site, it would be more interesting. But then I start reading a little bit more and I discover um, this line in an article from Marketing Land this morning, which I think is because it's great, right? You'd agree. It's great to have this kind of data, you would think, right? You know, <laughs> 
It it always depends on how useful you can make it. Right. And I'm I, I'm I'm with I'm still I'm honestly trying to figure it out. And I've had several clients who've wanted to know more about how social media is affecting them from an analytics perspective and they get all excited about how can we do this what's the best way to do this and then you know it's it's hard it's really hard to have an answer to that question right yeah and you might have a very modest social media campaign and a pretty modest website and then how much time do you really want to spend you know, drilling down on your, your social media analytics. I don't know. Well, I agree. And then, then I get to this nugget from uh, a post on this very topic by uh, Daniel Weisberg over at Marketing Land. <laughs> this is great. So these reports are powered by data from Social Data Hub, an initiative that Google launched last December that allows social networks to send activity for a site such as comments, shares, or likes into Google Analytics. That's great. I like things like hubs that allow me to integrate my data, right? Then he says, large networks like Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn have stayed out of social data hubs, so the new social reports won't include some of their activity that can't be found in other ways. (laughs) However, others like Delicious, Dig, Discuss, Livefire, and Reddit are participating, so social reports are more than just (laughs) Google Plus reporting, which is good because, you know... The ones that I'm really interested in are Facebook and Twitter and LinkedIn. Right. And and by the way, um, the ones that are mentioned there, uh, like Reddit, for instance, already have this built-in exactly. function that as soon as you use their URL shortener, it's it tags and feeds you back you know, all of the activity that, that came from that post. That's right. And all of the, and that may be actually part of the problem is the fragmentation of measurement services, right? I mean, I know I use Bitly uh, for all of my URL shortening, and I do that because I can see rudimentary traffic analytics based on people who click on my Bitly links, my my shortened links, just like, uh, you know, Reddit. I don't get that same sort of access when I'm looking at, you know, Twitter shortened links, but I you know, ideally with Google being able to track those, I, I would. Um, so it'll get better, but it's just I find it, you know, this sort of fragmentation of tools makes it makes it pretty challenging, I think, for, and, for and small it, it raises, to medium-sized businesses it, it, to get their arms around this. It raises what I think is an ongoing question about Google. And um, for as huge and successful and powerful and wealthy uh, and smart a company as they are, why does it seem that they get just a couple of things really, really right and then introduce all of these unfinished, fragmented, maybe it'll catch on, but it probably won't kind of, I mean, that's just sort of, I'm looking at this, you know, social hub, it's plug your social data into Google Analytics and just thinking about like, okay, (laughs) there are, I just don't see it going anywhere unless it's, you know, unless they're sort of revealing something with the hope that the demand will somehow increase and these other companies will see a value in jumping on board. I don't see it happening. It, you know, as is, doesn't seem like it's going to benefit many people. And I don't, it just seems like Google does this too often. Yeah. You know, I think that's part of his, um, you know, part of uh, Larry Page's big thing now, right? Which is, you know, more wood behind fewer arrows. Um, and, and that, you know, they're, they're starting to really cancel a lot of, um, you know, a lot of products, uh, that, 
you know, I think leadership saw as a distraction. And okay, so that's great. Uh, that that's great. But I still have, you know, I still have an awful lot of products that feel unfinished and feel pretty core to Google's experience. And I I wonder what that's. I wonder what's going to happen. I think that the separation of church and state between, you know, Google Apps and public-facing Gmail is a great example. Uh, Google is a, is a company that is notorious for making promises of, um, you know, milestone date promises and not making good on delivering them. Yeah, and I think it's great that they've got a lot of skunk works going on and they're, you know, trying this and trying to... But I, I do feel like there's a a, a disconnect between you know, somebody saying, okay, these are, these, these really are our long-term focus and whatever else we develop really needs to integrate and orbit um, those things in a way that will make it almost impossible to compete against us because, you know, it'll be so indispensable and they are, they are indispensable in a lot of areas, but um, I don't know. They're, they're just, they, they, if we were to go over the last two years of Google announcements and products that are in beta and, you know, I don't, I don't feel some of the time anyway, I don't know what percent, maybe half the time. I don't feel like it really says, wow, that is solidly right in the center of their, of why I love Google. And, and I totally get how I'm going to use even more of their products because of that, because that links a couple of their products together for me in a way that I, I can't resist. There, there's an interesting post uh, uh, from James Whitaker uh, at um, called "Why I Left Google." He's a, a technology executive who just left, uh, who just quit Google, and he writes. Uh, the Google I was passionate about was a technology company that empowered its employees to innovate. The Google I left was an advertising company with a single corporate mandated focus. Technically, I suppose Google has always been an advertising company, but for the better part of the last three years, at least, it didn't feel like one. Google was an ad company only in the sense that a good TV show is an ad company. Having great content attracts advertisers. Well, that's interesting. Kind of sad. Yeah, you know, I mean, it is kind of sad. Uh, we'll see what, what happens. I still, I still vastly enjoy the Google Plus experience, and I use it every single day. I use it, you know, I, I'm finding, interestingly, more activity, again, on... Uh, Facebook on the same things that I post when I cross post the same thing. Uh, my Google Plus has gotten more and more quiet over the last month. I think as uh, and and I think that's a sad thing too. Uh, but uh, as we talked about last week's show, uh, Google doesn't care. Uh, they, they, I'm already set up. I'm already a user, and I've already liked things, and therefore I'm in the system. So they have me. So speaking of, uh, you know, we we, we like to. Uh... I, I guess sort of um, fromate. <laughs> Did I get that one right? Um, uh, on, on marketing and advertising, and the fact that uh, you know sometimes we, sometimes we just um, despise it, um, but other times we're enthralled by it. Um, we seem to be constantly, at least, curious. I got to tell you, on on the side of the love it were the Mad Men ads during the season finale of The Walking Dead. Did you catch the Mad Men ads or did you skip them? I, I, I iTunes it, so I don't see any ads. Oh, man. Oh, you, well, you should Google them, uh, as I'm okay. sure they're out there. 
they they were t- <laughs> they're great. They are so well done. I I do you I, do you want to talk about why or should we talk about why next week once I've seen them? Are you trying not to spoil it? Uh, let's talk about them next week because the season premiere is Sunday. So there's probably going to be, you know, a lot more ads between now and then, but okay. they did this really clever thing. Um, there, like there was one ad that was, seemed like it was almost a two minute ad. I don't know. Maybe it was a minute, but it was, t- it was, t- it totally was tied into the walking dead. So, uh, they were using some references to characters in the walking dead and, but but just this great you know sense of humor about the people in the show and with you know with lines like um and it was uh you know the silver-haired guy like uh I, like i always jump at a chance to outdrink my client and just funny little things that yeah. you know are like and then they said like in the in the closing line like and back when they used to drink like Herschel used to drink. <laughs> <laughs> so really clever, really funny. And there's That's probably awesome. going to be, I would imagine, some other AMC shows that they've built, you know, Mad Men commercials and 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 are referencing funny yeah. things about, you know, the show that you're watching. So, so stay tuned for that. I was pretty entertained. I think they had like three spots during The Walking Dead and they were all really, really funny. That's awesome. I, uh... I'm gonna search for him. Did you did you like the uh, finale? Oh man, that was intense. It's good, right? Yeah, I'm a little disturbed by the ending, but um, that was intense. The uh, they introduced a really key new character for uh, season three, Michonne. Oh yeah, that that's, was that's the yeah. the chick with the sword. Right. So yeah, well, good. You didn't get to see her face or anything. No, did. and you don't in the in the graphic novel. You don't either for a long time. She and just she hangs just out hit. with with zombies, armless zombies on a, on leashes. That was intense. Yeah, that was I, like that's the iconic image when she cuts off that head and they they have that sort of tilt up and you're looking at her sort of backlit. Uh, it it's uh it was pretty cool and and they're going. It looks like they're going to prison. Uh, next season, which is, is that what that was? Yeah, it's about time. They they spend a lot of time in the graphic novel in prison, and they, they I mean they have to go, they have to clean out the prison. There are lots of zombies in the prison, oh, and then I, I'm gonna have to get a hold of some of the the graphic novels. Yeah, no, it's 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 where they it'll fill in. I mean, it's not coming back until what October. So you you've got I mean there are 95 I think issues for you to catch up on, and uh, all of them are available in the Comicsology uh, store on the ipad uh well, so do, it's it's do, totally worth it do some madman uh commercial research i'm yeah. going to too and my the thing i'm going to be looking for a thing i'm curious about is uh are these commercials produced by the writers of the show or or did they give that over to, to an ad agency yeah to do the spots that's really interesting all right i'm gonna go look for them right now so yeah right. that's that that i think is one of the most fascinating shows on TV. So I, you know, I've never, I've, I watched the first three episodes of season one and never watched it again. Oh, well, season one is pretty disposable. Season two is, I think where it starts to get far more interesting and it is a very slow build and, and every show is a character study. So you have to really, you have to work your way through three or four episodes, I think to really be stuck of, of in season it. two. I'd start with season two. All right. Yeah. All right. I'll do that. I'll give it, I'll give it, uh, give it I'll a jump shot into season two. 
Give it a shot. All right.